So uh, today we've got Dr. Mackenzie Graham. Mackenzie is a senior research fellow at the Ethox Center and the Welcome Center for uh, Ethics and Humanities. And of course, uh, he's also a UHERO alumni. He's currently part of the National Consortium of Intelligent Medical Imaging, uh, investigating ethical issues arising from the collection, storage, and sharing of digitized medical images. And that project is aiming to facilitate the ethical integration of AI-enhanced clinical imaging uh, into medical practice. But that project's still in its early stages, and so we're not going to hear about that now, but you know, <laughs> good to keep in mind in case you're interested in that kind of thing. Uh, Mackenzie is working on that. Uh, but today, uh, we're going to uh, hear about choosing now for later, precedent autonomy, and problem of surrogate decision-making after severe brain injury. I take it away, Mackenzie. Great. Okay, thanks, Doug. Um, yeah, so my name's Mackenzie. Um, so today I'm going to talk a little bit about um, a group of patients uh, with disorders of consciousness. So it's a, if any of you have heard me speak before, you've probably heard a little bit about these patients. Um, kind of my previous research before um, I started doing stuff with AI was on these patients, and I was interested in questions of um, understanding well-being in these patients. So this is a little bit uh, different uh, kind of project, which is sort of in its middle stages, we'll call it. Um, so I'm interested in how we ought to make decisions on behalf of these patients um, in kind of the, the weeks, the days, weeks, and months just after their injury. So there's kind of a standard way that we approach these sorts of problems, um, which I'll talk about kind of the early going. Um, and then I'll explain why I think that this, this standard approach has some problems, um, especially as it pertains to patients like this. I'll use them as kind of a case example to illustrate what I take to be some weaknesses in this standard view. Um, and then I'll try and sketch out a bit of a, a way forward for how, um, how we can um, make decisions on behalf of these patients. So we'll get started uh, with a case. That's a good place to start. Okay. So Frida is a 32-year-old uh, female. She suffered a severe traumatic brain injury when she struck by a motor vehicle while riding her bicycle. So she's rushed to the hospital, uh, and her condition is stabilized by emergency physicians. Uh, but she remains in a coma for about five days. You can see this is clearly a pre-COVID kind of ICU. Um, so her husband is acting as her surrogate decision maker, uh, and he's informed by her neurologist that her prognosis is uncertain, um, but the husband elects to continue uh, life-sustaining treatment because we are still kind of in the early going. So after about two months, uh, Frida has emerged from her coma, and unfortunately, she's diagnosed as having unresponsive wakefulness syndrome. Uh, this is also referred to as a vegetative state. So Frida is not showing any evidence of awareness of herself uh, or her environment during a bedside examination. So when doctors ask her to uh, sort of follow up a pen light with her with her eyes or uh, wiggle her toes or squeeze her uh, fingers to command. She's not able to do any of this. So she's able to sort of move reflexively, but she's not able to um, do any kind of voluntary movement. She doesn't uh, appear to understand uh, language or anything like that. Uh, however, uh, an EEG has detected a P300 signal in response to a recording of her voice. So when we play a recording of her voice beside her, um, we see a little a little bit of a brain signal and this in the past has found to be predictive of recovery 
in a post-traumatic vegetative state. So there's some indication that maybe she'll make a recovery, um, but other than that, things aren't looking very good. So at this stage after her injury, so this is sort of two months after um, her accident, uh, it remains unclear to what extent Frida might actually recover. So on the one hand, her husband believes that she wouldn't want to continue living in a severely disabled state like this. Um, and he thinks this because she often talked about uh, her grandmother's um, decline in the later stages of dementia and how she wouldn't want to live um, in a severely disabled state like this. Um, so the husband thinks, well, actually, maybe the best thing to do for her is to go withdraw her from treatment. Uh, her parents, on the other hand, believe that there's a reasonable chance of a meaningful recovery, even still, um, and that with the right support, uh, Frida could have an acceptable quality of life, even in a pretty severely disabled state. Uh, however, no one is really sure uh, how to proceed. So sadly, this is, I think, a pretty indicative case uh, for these kinds of patients. Um, things are often very uncertain um, for quite a long time until the patient sort of uh, declares themselves, you might say. Um, so it might take weeks, weeks or months, several months before we really get a clear sense of what we can expect from the patient in terms of recovery. But families have to make these very difficult decisions uh, on the basis of not a lot of evidence. Um, and obviously, because these are oftentimes life or death decisions, this can be very difficult. So these are the kinds of patients I want to talk about today, but first I'll, we'll do a little bit of background um, in disorders of consciousness just to kind of situate us here. So this is um, just kind of a basic diagram of how different disorders of consciousness can kind of be arranged along these three sorts of scales. Um, so it's a collection of syndromes, disorders of consciousness, that are kind of transitory. So typically you move from coma into BS, into MCS, and then make a full recovery. Well, not usually, but when you do make a full recovery, you kind of move through these stages. Um, and after about four weeks, um, it's considered a prolonged uh, disorder of consciousness. So the way we diagnose these, um, these disorders is uh, usually with a uh, bedside behavioral test. So we'll ask a patient to uh, follow commands. So we'll say if you can uh, understand what I'm saying, um, wiggle your wiggle your toes or move your uh, move your fingers. Um, we'll ask you ask if you to turn your head in a certain way or things like that. Um, so patients in a coma uh, down here in the bottom left, get my little laser pointer out here. In a coma, you can see are not aware and they're not awake and they don't move. Um, so these are patients eyes are closed, um, completely unaware of what's going on around them. So they're kind of at zero on the wakefulness scale, the awareness scale, and the motor behavior scale. Um, VS patients, so this is the, the state that we think Frida uh, from the example is in, uh, she is awake, so her eyes are open, and these patients go through kind of sleeping, waking cycles. Um, but they're not uh, aware of anything that's going on around them, so they're kind of at the zero on the awareness uh, scale. Um, and also, they don't, they don't move kind of voluntarily. So we will sometimes see kind of reflexive uh, movements from these patients, but they don't exhibit sort of voluntary motor behavior. Um, in about 2002, um, so this was first, this condition was first discovered in kind of the, in the 1970s. And then in about 2002, um, physicians started distinguishing between uh, VS patients and MCS patients. So these are patients we can see are also awake, um, and they go through intermittent kind of stages of awareness. So sometimes they're able to follow commands, um, and sometimes they're able to, as you can see also, um, move volitionally, but sometimes uh, they can't. So it kind of depends on uh, when the assessment takes place. Um, 
if we're able to diagnose someone as MCS. So MCS plus and MCS uh, minus um, relates to whether the patient can actually communicate or not. And then we see up at the very top is full consciousness. So uh, like you and I, we're fully awake, we're fully aware, and we're capable of volitional motor behavior. So the patients I'm going to talk about today are these patients, CMD patients. Um, so only recently have these patients even begun to be recognized um, because it's very difficult to tell the difference between a CMD patient and a VS patient. Um, so these patients are awake, um, and as it turns out, they are aware, but because they don't exhibit any motor behavior, it's very difficult uh, to tell the difference between these two using only a kind of behavioral scale. Um, so as I say, it's very difficult to, um, to diagnose kind of MCS or CMD. So about 40% of the time um, someone is diagnosed as, a, as being in a VS, uh, this is a misdiagnosis. So we do the uh, behavioral assessment. We think, okay, so this patient's totally non-responsive. Um, if we reassess them, you know, a few days later, um, sometimes we, we end up getting them at a period where they're a little bit more aware. Um, and then we're able to see that actually this patient is an MCS. So it's quite difficult to, um, to get this right. Um, so, right, so this is usually done on the basis of a bedside um, assessment. And as I say, these are, these are not um, kind of perfect measures. Um, but even amongst patients that um, are repeatedly diagnosed uh, as being in a VS using these behavioral scales, um, studies have shown over the last uh, decade or so 10, 15 years have shown that about 15%, actually probably about 15 to 17% now um, of patients who repeatedly satisfy all of the um, diagnostic, diagnostic criteria for being in a vegetative state um, are actually aware. So are actually um, CMD, we would now call them. So the first um, kind of landmark study that showed this was in 2006 uh, by Adrian Owen um, and colleagues. This was at Cambridge uh, University. Now he's at the University of Western Ontario. Um, so for those of you who aren't familiar uh, with this research, uh, basically what, um, what they did was they put um, these patients in a uh, fMRI scanner. So these patients had been, as I say, repeatedly diagnosed as VMs. Um, they were put in an fMRI scanner and asked uh, to imagine performing certain tasks uh, when instructed to do so. Um, so here we can see kind of um, uh, an image of a healthy person's brain. You can see it has sort of a, a normal shape, and this is one of the patients that suffered a traumatic brain injury. You can see there uh, where the trauma occurred. Um, so what they were asked to do was, once they were in the, uh, in the scanner, asked to imagine playing tennis when they heard the word imagine. So in healthy controls, when we ask someone to imagine playing tennis, we see activation in the supplementary motor area right here. Um, and if, we, if a patient was truly unconscious, we would expect to see nothing. Um, but in about 15% of patients, as it turns out, we see very similar uh, activation to a healthy uh, participant. Um, so they would ask them to imagine playing tennis for about 30 seconds. So you can do this for yourself. Um, it requires a fair amount of focus to kind of sustain your attention on this particular task for that amount of time. So they would ask them to play, imagine playing tennis for 30 seconds, then they'd relax, um, and then the uh, activation would go away. Then they'd ask them to imagine playing tennis again. The brain would light up again, um, tell them to relax. So they would do this in kind of blocks of five. Um, so the odds of this happening sort of just by chance, um, I would say, were slim to none, um, especially with sort of repeat repeat scanning. Um, 
so they, in addition to the, the tennis task, they also ask them to imagine um, walking around uh, a familiar room in their house or sort of walking around the streets uh, of their neighborhood. And this activates a whole network of uh, brain areas in a healthy control. And as we can see, a similar network um, within uh, some patients that are diagnosed as vegetative. Um, so patients fitting this profile, so behaviorally non-responsive, uh, yet able to demonstrate evidence of awareness through command following are called um, cognitive, that are said to have cognitive motive association. Uh, so they're aware, but they don't uh, display any kind of motor behavior. So these patients can encompass sort of a wide range of capacities. We know that they possess uh, certain cognitive capacities, just as an inference from what it would take to do the kind of mental imagery task. So we know that they can understand language. Uh, we know that they're capable of sustaining their attention in a certain way. We know they have some degree of working memory because they need to remember the instructions and then carry them out. Um, they have some degree of response selection so they can decide what to think about. If we ask them to imagine playing tennis, they could have imagined something else, but they chose to imagine playing tennis. Um, and a subset of patients, so a subset of this 15%, um, has actually been able to use the uh, mental imagery task uh, to communicate as well. So in a paper in 2010 by Martin Monty and colleagues, um, they asked one of the, the patients who was really good at command following um, a series of yes or no questions. So they would ask him, is your name X? And if the answer is yes, um, imagine playing tennis. And if the answer is no, um, imagine walking through your house. And so he was able to do this, uh, use mental imagery to communicate in kind of this basic sort of way. So on the left uh, here is Scott Rowley, and he was one of the kind of the first communicators using mental imagery. And on the, the right is uh, Jeff Tromblay. He was the first one to, uh, to demonstrate awareness through the movie task, um, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, so to date, the vast majority of patients um, who have been able to demonstrate uh, covert awareness um, have, have um, have been what we would call chronic um, uh, chronic disorders of consciousness. So it's only after you know, several months or in uh, Scott's case, several years of uh, being in what was considered a vegetative state um, that they were able to demonstrate their awareness. Um, so these patients were, um, as a general rule, ph physiologically stable. They were either living in long-term long care or living at home with family members. Um, so at this time, months or years after their injury, further recovery uh, was pretty unlikely. Um, although not necessarily impossible, there have been a handful of cases where uh, someone has made kind of a full recovery even after being in a vegetative state for, uh, for several months. Um, but importantly for this discussion, uh, at this kind of chronic stage, um, end of life kind of decisions uh, tend not to be at the forefront for surrogate decision makers. So decisions about whether we're going to pursue aggressive treatment, um, such as brain surgery, or whether, going to, or whether we're going to insert a tracheostomy tube, or whether we're going to insert feeding tubes or things like that, uh, these decisions are made kind of within the first few days or the first few weeks uh, after injury. So for chronic patients like Jeff and Scott, um, the discovery of covert awareness probably wasn't going to make a huge difference to um, treatment decisions. Um, obviously, it's going to be important for lots of other reasons. Um, having to do with how we understand kind of welfare in these patients. But as far as treatment decisions, probably doesn't make a huge difference. Um, and so not surprisingly, kind of discussions about 
um, whether we would whether um, these patients would now be withdrawn from treatment or whether this provided kind of a further motivation to keep them alive. This is sort of not at the forefront for um, for surrogate decision makers kind of at this stage. However, um, it is at the forefront of uh, thinking for patients and families in the acute uh, stages after brain injury. So just the idea that potentially 15% of patients that are diagnosed as vegetative might actually be kind of covertly aware um, really complicates uh, surrogate decision-making. Um, so as I mentioned before, um, <coughs> excuse me, the, the potential for recovery um, within disorders of consciousness, it declines kind of over time. Um, so after a traumatic brain injury, it's very, very unlikely that a patient's gonna recover consciousness uh, 12 months after their injury. Um, and for an anoxic brain injury, it's very, very uncommon um, for them to recover consciousness three months after their brain injury. But of course, waiting this amount of time for things to become a bit more um, certain, um, it also eliminates certain kinds of treatment decisions that you might make. So um, usually withdrawal decisions are made kind of within the first uh, few days. I think one study suggested that after brain injury, uh, I think it was 50% of um, patients that were withdrawn were withdrawn within the first 72 hours. So usually these decisions are made quite early when things are very uncertain um, because we just don't know how these patients are going to do and kind of what their um, trajectory for recovery is going to be. Um, and now when you throw into the mix this idea that, well, 15% um, of these patients might actually be conscious already or 15% of patients who appear to lack consciousness might actually be conscious. Um, you can see how this would uh, complicate uh, decision-making for surrogate decision-makers. Uh, so unfortunately, um, functional neuroimaging to detect covert awareness is not sort of widely available. Right now, it only occurs at a handful of research institutions around the world. So this is not something that is accessible at kind of a typical hospital. Um, so right now, it's only accessible in a research context. Um, part of that's due to um, sort of the expertise that's required to administer these kinds of tests and interpret the results. Um, Part of it is due to just the, the lack of availability of fMRI um, or research-grade fMRI. Um, a potential resolution to this latter concern is, is um, the use of EEG and FNIRs, so that's um, electroencephalography and functional near-infrared spectroscopy. Um, these are other ways that we can um, assess consciousness, so we can do kind of mental imagery with these other uh, modalities. Um, and these are portable, so these can be done at the bedside, so we reduce the risk of moving patients around and, and putting them in the scanner. So potentially, um, using neuroimaging to assess uh, covert awareness might become more widespread uh, in the, the nearer future, but it was only in 2018 that the American Academy of Neurology updated its practice guidelines and said that um, using functional neuroimaging was an appropriate um, method of assessing um, kind of covert awareness uh, in patients. So prior to then, this was not something that they, that they recommended doing. Um, and now it's acceptable to do when there is um, kind of ambiguity with behavioral tests. So there's still a little bit of skepticism still about um, making this kind of a standard part of, um, of diagnosis for these patients. Um, but there's reason to think that it might become more spread more widespread in the near future. 
But it's important to remember that um, oftentimes um, functional linear imaging is going to return a negative finding. So as I said, about 15% of patients that are um, scanned are able to demonstrate COVID awareness. Um, that means that, what, 85% uh, don't um, demonstrate any evidence of COVID awareness. However, that doesn't mean that they aren't conscious. It just means that they weren't able to do mental imagery. Um, so it is possible that a patient could still be conscious, but they just weren't able to do the task. Um, because as it turns out, less than 100% of healthy undergraduates aren't able to do mental imagery. So maybe that means that they aren't actually conscious, but more likely it means that sometimes we get false negatives um, using this kind of test. Okay, so the big question uh, here that I wanna talk about today, how should surrogates make decisions on behalf of behaviorally non-responsive patients? So given that there's this uncertain trajectory, and given that some patients might be covertly aware, um, but we don't know which ones they are, and we really don't have a good sense of what life is like for these kinds of patients, um, they could be suffering. Uh, it could be that you know, they, they turn out to live uh, an acceptable life if we just sort of give them enough time to declare themselves um, and keep them alive. Or maybe, like I say, they are um, experiencing uh, sort of profound suffering. Um, so given all of this uncertainty, what, what should surrogate decision makers do? It's a difficult question. Um, we'll try and get a, a bit of clarity. Okay, so the standard view of surrogate decision making um, adopted in sort of most legal statutes uses a hierarchical framework. So the first thing that one ought to do as a surrogate decision maker uh, is appeal to any advanced directives that exist. So when a formerly competent patient expresses a clear preference, for or against a certain intervention, um, and, they, and they articulate this in an advanced directive, the surrogate, basically all they have to do is see that this preference is adhered to as much as possible. So if I write out, um, I don't want, uh, under no circumstances do I want a tracheostomy, then my surrogate decision maker just needs to say, well, um, we, don't, we don't want to do that when the, when the physician asks, should we, um, should we kind of go down that road? Um, in many cases, however, there is no advanced directive. People don't tend to write um, advanced directives that often. Um, so when no advanced directive exists, uh, the task of the surrogate is to make a substituted judgment on their behalf. So basically what they have to do is decide as the patient would have decided for themselves in the circumstances if they were competent. So they kind of have to reconstruct sort of what the patient's uh, motivations would have been and, and the decision that they would have made for themselves if they could. Um, so when a substitute judgment isn't possible, either because we just don't know what the patient would have wanted or because there's no one around that really knows them, um, we, we kind of fall to the, uh, the best interest standard. So we just make the decision that we think um, in a general sort of way would be in the patient's best interest. So this appeals to a kind of a general conception of interest that most people could be expected to have. So we, we are concerned about uh, minimizing suffering, or we think most people would be concerned about restoring physical capacity, so we, we make decisions with an eye to restoring physical capacity, just sort of based on what a reasonable person would probably want for themselves. So it's a little less tailored to sort of uh, the individual preferences uh, of, of the patient. Okay, so that's the standard view. Uh, but in practice, uh, surrogate decision making, perhaps not surprisingly, often departs from this standard model. Um, so surrogates will engage in conversations with physicians about what the patient's prognosis is and the possibility 
of their recovery or decline. Um, they will weigh kind of the burdens of continued treatment on the patient. So is the patient suffering physically, emotionally, mentally? What is their anticipated quality of life? So all these are important um, considerations um, in sort of informing uh, best interest or substituted judgment. But surrogates also um, sometimes will draw on beliefs about the patient's personality. So they might say things like, well, you know, uh, Frida was a real fighter and she wouldn't want us to give up on her. Um, or um, Frida was very religious and so she believed in sort of the preciousness of life and so she would want us to continue going. Or um, Frida believed that, um, you know, God would take care take care of her and so we don't we don't want sort of medical um, te technological kinds of interventions. Um, surrogates might also consider sort of the burdens on themselves or um, other members of the patient's family in deciding what would what would be best. Um, or they might think, well, what would I want in this situation if I was the patient? Um, so again, they're not making kind of a substituted judgment. They're thinking um, what, what they would sort of prefer and, and using that to kind of inform their decision. So in reality, um, surrogate decision-making is in practice, I should say it's kind of a mishmash of a whole bunch of different strategies, but there isn't really um, one sort of clear um, formula that families tend to follow. And, this can lead to uh, conflicts and uncertainty about what to do, either kind of amongst families or between them. Um, so adhering to the standard view um, of surrogate decision-making does provide uh, one way of resolving the conflict. So um, the surrogate should make a substituted judgment in Frida's case. Um, so based on the fact that she said she wouldn't want to live in a severely disabled state, um, she expressed this preference fairly clearly, um, what we ought to do um, is adhere to it and um, uh, stop treating her. So I want to argue uh, that the standard view of surrogate decision-making has some flaws. Um, the substituted judgment standard specifically uh, assumes that once a patient loses decision-making capacity, their past values and wishes become authoritative. So what we need to do once a patient loses the capacity to make decisions for themselves um, is to think about what they wanted in the past or what they expressed in the past and and use that to sort of construct what we should do now um, so i propose that a person can lose decision making capacity but still retain sufficient mental capacities to allow them to have meaningful values and interests and it's these values and interests that should guide surrogate decision making not necessarily their past values and wishes so i don't want to argue that uh, past uh, wishes or preferences or things like that are never relevant uh, I'm not arguing that we should uh, never look to um, a patient's prior wishes or their advanced records to decide what we should do. I think in some cases we should do that. Um, I just want to more question uh, why we tend to draw the line at the loss of decision-making capacity. So why is it that once a patient loses decision-making capacity, um, we, we care much, much less about um, their present interests or values, um, and we care much, much more about what they wanted in the past. So I want to question that, and then I want to go on to explore how this might apply in cases of uh, CMD. Um, and I'll argue that patients with CMD retain sufficient mental capacities to continue to have values and interests in the present, uh, despite lacking decision-making capacity. Okay. Um, so any of you who are interested in medical ethics, you would know that um, in Western medical ethics, at least, there's a very high value uh, placed on individual autonomy. Uh, so because the burden of treatment is primarily borne by the patient, we think that patients have the right to choose which treatments they uh, will and won't accept. 
Um, so surrogate decision making kind of starts from this, this basic starting point. So when a patient can't be relied upon to make decisions for themselves about their treatment, uh, how can we project their general right to make their own decisions? Um, so if we can't decide for ourselves in the present, how can we sort of respect the importance of individual autonomy in decision making on their behalf? So we ask ourselves, what would the patient have decided for themselves? Uh, I mean, this is a natural strategy to look at what the patient's prior wishes were, what they expressed when they were so confident, um, and kind of build from that prior stage of confidence what we should do kind of for them in the present. So our best alternative is to appeal to the choices that, we made, that they made uh, in the past. Um, uh, a highly influential um, articulation of this view uh, comes from uh, Dworkin uh, in the book, Life's Dominion. So I'll talk a little bit more about uh, Dworkin and his view of autonomy. Um, so for Dworkin, uh, well-being um, well depends on experiential interests and critical interests. So experiential interests um, are those things that we value because we like the experience of doing them. So these are things that we think are exciting or enjoyable or pleasurable. So it doesn't track perfectly with what we find pleasurable, but these are things that we enjoy doing just kind of for the sake of, of doing them. Um, critical interests, on the other hand, are concerned with things that we believe are genuinely important for a good life. So critical interests kind of capture what we think is really valuable and about what we should want from our lives. And if we didn't have these things, we'd be much worse off. So I might have an experiential interest uh, in playing golf or um, hanging out with my, my friends uh, because this is just something that I like to do. It, um, it makes me happy. It gives me pleasure. Uh, conversely, having um, a, a sort of a good relationship with my siblings might be a critical interest I have. I think it's really important um, for a good life to have a good relationship with one's family or something like that. Um, and in fact, people who don't have a good relationship with their family are um, sort of less well off. Um, they're, they're missing something that's important for a good life. Um, so this is, this is something about what's really valuable. I don't I don't like having a relationship with my family because it necessarily makes me happy, although it does. Um, but the reason I'm doing this is because I think it's something that's genuinely important. Um, so not only do we want to have sort of the right experiential interests and critical interests on Dworkin's view, uh, we also want these interests to be satisfied in the right way. Specifically, we want these things to kind of form a cohesive uh, narrative. We want our experience to be ordered in the right kind of way. And to put this another way, we want to be, on Dworkin's view, uh, the authors of our own life. Um, so it's in pursuing kind of critical interests uh, that, we, that our decisions are shaped and we sort of construct the narrative shape of our lives. So we want our lives to have the right kind of experiences and achievements, but we want them to have a certain kind of integrity. So in um, expressing our critical interests, we're sort of constructing um, the kind of people that we think uh, we ought to be. So we're sort of forming this, this coherent sort of narrative of ourselves, and we're, we're living this out through our critical interests. So I think it's important um, for people to have good relationships with their family, and that kind of structures a lot of the decisions that I make. Um, and this is why it's important uh, for me to have autonomy, um, because it's through exercising my autonomy that I am able to sort of express my critical interest or satisfy my critical interests and sort of create this coherent narrative structure. Um, and so one of the ways that we can see the importance of this sort of life narrative um, is actually when um, 
people are talking about the ends of their lives. So when people talk about um, kind of dying with dignity or, you know, I wouldn't want people to see me um, in a hospital bed all full of uh, tubes surrounded by machines because um, that's not the kind of person that I sort of want to be remembered as. So that's not the sort of person I see myself as being. Um, so as much as we want our lives to follow this sort of um, appropriate life narrative, we also want our deaths to be kind of an appropriate last chapter to our life narrative. We want things to be sort of consistent across our lives with this sense of self that we created over the course of our lives um, by living out our critical interests. So it's important for, for Dwork, and this is why autonomy is important. Um, it's important that we're able to choose for ourselves, not because we're necessarily going to uh, make the best decisions um, with respect to our well-being. Um, in fact, he acknowledges that sometimes, um, well, oftentimes we make decisions that aren't in our best interest. Um, the importance of autonomy for Dworkin is that it allows us to sort of author our own lives. And that's why we really think autonomy is important. So once we lose our decision-making capacity, we lose this power to author our own self-narrative. So we can't really, uh, once we lose our decision-making capacity, we lose this sort of sense of ourselves. We lose this coherent sense of self. And our decisions don't really um, kind of help to construct this narrative anymore. Um, and at this time, once we lose decision-making capacity, others don't need to sort of adhere to the decisions that we, um, that we make because they're no longer autonomous decisions. However, we still have a way to sort of preserve people's um, uh, sort of self-narrative, um, even after they've lost decision-making capacity. And we can do this by appealing to their past decisions, so decisions that they, they made when they were competent. So we can allow them to continue to sort of author their own lives, by appealing to their past decisions. And this is what Dworkin calls precedent autonomy. So by respecting a person's precedent autonomy, we allow them to shape their life narrative in the way that they did when they were competent, um, not by respecting the, the decisions that they make now, but the decisions that they made in the past when they were still fully competent. So importantly, we ought to do this even if it appears to conflict with their best interests in the present. So even if honoring an incompetent patient's past decisions conflicts with what appears to be in their best interest now, we should um, side with their past interests because th these are the interests that help to construct um, that life narrative that's, that's so important. Okay, so the best way to respect precedent autonomy is through an advanced directive, says Dworkin, and this, this seems to make sense if what we care about is um, sort of preserving a life narrative. Uh, why not appeal to um, people's wishes and preferences that they wrote down? Um, unfortunately, only about 25% of people actually have um, advanced directives, and these are typically elderly people. Um, so this wouldn't really apply to a lot of the kinds of patients that um, we're talking about now, CMD patients, because these tend to be sort of younger, middle-aged um, patients. These are the kinds of people that tend to survive severe traumatic brain injury, um, and so they're unlikely to have advanced directives. Um, sort of a more general problem is that advanced directives often don't contain any meaningful information. So they're um, purposely broad um, to try to cover as many possible situations as they can, but beca because they're so broad, we lose um, something in terms of specificity. Um, so while an advanced directive might say something like um, you wouldn't want to have um, sort of a feeding tubes inserted into your body uh, for any reason. Um, what if 
if this was only required for you know uh, two days or something like that. Um, so that level, that kind of granularity isn't always there in, in advanced directives. Um, perhaps more problematically is that advanced directives are often uninformed. Um, so people filling them out, um, studies indicate that they're, they're um, quite um, susceptible to change over time. So what people articulate in an advanced directive tends to be just what they're feeling at the time. Um, so it's not like there's a lot of reflection that goes into this before the advanced directive is kind of created. It is sort of a time capsule, so to speak, of, um, of people's treatment preferences at a certain time. So there's, um, we might be unsure about whether this reflects what the person would actually want um, when the time comes to, to appeal to the advanced directive. So like advanced directives, uh, substituted judgment is also taken to support uh, precedent autonomy, um, but it's susceptible to similar kinds of uh, practical problems. So it has difficulty accounting for changes in people's preferences um, over time. So I might think sort of now um, that I wouldn't want to live with a severe disability, uh, but then I become friends with someone with a severe disability and I get to see sort of what life is actually like for them. Uh, and then I think, well, maybe being severely disabled wouldn't be as bad as I thought. Or um, maybe I become severely disabled. And then I think, well, actually, being severely disabled isn't as bad as I thought. Um, I, I would definitely change my preference from what it was before. Um, so substituted judgment has some difficulty accounting for these changes in preferences. Um, surrogates also have a difficulty identifying where their own needs and values differ from those of the patients. So this is something that I kind of mentioned before. Um, introducing another party into the decision-making introduces lots of sources of error uh, and bias. So surrogates, um, they might not be able to clearly separate what the patient would have, um, would have decided, uh, what would be best for them, versus what the, uh, the surrogate kind of thinks that the patient would have decided. Um, surrogates are also susceptible to certain kinds of biases. So for example, the status quo bias um, is where people just tend to not want to uh, make any changes to treatment. Um, so we don't want to withdraw and we just sort of let things stay as they are so that we don't have to make a decision. So this often happens in the cases, in cases of substituted judgment. So again, by introducing another party, we kind of introduce these sources of um, error or bias. Um, and studies suggest that surrogates are only correct in sort of um, determining uh, what a patient would want about 68% of the time. So in these sorts of studies, we ask uh, one person to say, you know, what, what they would want in certain um, circumstances, then we ask their, their surrogate decision maker to kind of uh, guess what they would have wanted, and they only match up about 68% of the time. Um, of course, this is not a perfect measure of how surrogates actually work um, kind of in, in practice, but it suggests that um, surrogate decision making is by no means um, 100% accurate. Okay, but I think there is, um, in addition to these sorts of practical problems that you think maybe we could resolve with um, more education about the importance of advanced directives or um, kind of more, more um, counseling for surrogate decision makers, these are sort of practical problems we could get over. Um, I think there's a deeper problem here. So recall um, that on the standard view, the value of autonomy is grounded in the importance of being the author of one's own self-narrative. So once 
uh, decision-making capacity is lost, a person can't be uh, a self-author anymore. So we have to appeal to their past decisions and values. So a paradigm case of this uh, is patients with advanced Alzheimer's. Um, so these patients at a certain point have lost decision-making capacity. And this is taken to be roughly contemporaneous with the loss, the kind of global loss of the ability to conceive of their critical interests. So they no longer have this coherent sense of themselves and they, they can't sort of act out of um, kind of a genuine um, character anymore. So they've lost this sense of sort of who, who they are and what motivates kind of their, their critical interests. Um, and this happens at around the time that they lose decision-making capacity. Um, and so the reason that losing decision-making capacity is so important is because now they can't kind of author their own lives anymore. And this is why uh, it's important to immediately move to consideration of their past interests to allow them to kind of continue to author their, author their lives because that's what we think is really important. Um, so I want to suggest that patients with CMV uh, likely, I mean, we don't know this for sure because this would be quite difficult to verify, but would likely have lost decision-making capacity. Uh, but it seems possible uh, that they still have the kinds of preferences and values which we think should shape decision-making on their behalf. So they may have the capacity for genuine values and commitments even after losing decision-making capacity. So they might uh, enjoy or genuinely value being kind of part of a family group um, they might value participating in scientific research uh, and sort of benefiting future patients, even though they lack the capacity to make specific decisions about these kinds of things. So we wouldn't say um, to Scott, do you sort of consent to participating in this neuroimaging study because we don't think he has decision-making capacity, but this doesn't mean that he doesn't get sort of some value out of contributing to science, even if we don't think he could make a specific decision about this for himself. Um, so these kinds of values don't seem to have anything to do with um, our life narrative, but they do seem genuinely important. So there's sort of a minor objection to Dworkin and a major objection to Dworkin. And to be honest, I'm not 100% I'm not sure which one I, I really want to make here. So the minor objection seems to be something like this. Um, maybe CMD patients actually do still have something like decision-making capacity even though this is something we don't know or we, we can't really know. Um, so in this case, the best thing to do to reflect their life narrative would be to emphasize their present concerns, whatever these happen to be. So really the tension is between their past life narrative and the present life narrative. Um, so I think Dworkin could maybe accommodate this because we're still sort of privileging the importance of life narrative. Um, the question is just how best to do that. Um, he thinks that it's, the best way to do that is to appeal to past um, decisions. And I would suggest that maybe the best way to, to, to accommodate that is to deal with present sort of values. Um, but ultimately, we're kind of agreeing that life narrative is important um, or sort of of primary importance. Or the, the more significant objection is that, look, life narrative is not the only reason that we care about autonomy. Um, so even if CMD patients uh, don't have kind of the capacity to continue to author their life narrative because they don't have this coherent sense of self anymore. Um, surely they still have the kinds of values um, and interests that we think are important and ought to um, sort of inform our, our decision-making on their behalf. So forget about the fact that um, they're no longer the authors of their own lives. What we should be concerned about is sort of other important values that they might have in the present, um, not so much on their sort of past wishes. 
And so this sort of objection would apply not only to CND patients, but any kind of patient that lacks decision-making capacity. So is there any evidence for these kind of significant cognitive capacities in patients with CND? Okay, so we said before, uh, the mental imagery task requires the exercise of a range of cognitive capacities. So things like sustained attention and language comprehension, all the things that you need to do to imagine playing tennis. Um, and some patients um, have also participated in what I referred to before as the movie task. Um, so in this, um, in this experiment, uh, patients were uh, just told to lie in the scanner and sort of attend to this suspenseful movie. So this, it was a short movie clip, uh, I think it was called Bang, You're Dead, and it was a Alfred Hitchcock kind of TV movie. So very quick plot summary, the, the little boy on the left, um, he thinks he's playing with the toy gun, but he's actually playing with the real gun. So he's walking around pointing it at people, pretending to shoot them. Um, and as the viewer, this is very suspenseful because you think, oh, if he actually pulled the trigger, he might kill somebody. Um, so there's a whole kind of series of experiments, but just to sort of, um, to condense it, Basically, when a healthy person watches a um, movie like this, we see a kind of characteristic pattern of activation in various parts of their brain, um, having to do with sort of executive function. So this is, this is a part of the brain, uh, sorry, kind of a system in the brain that allows us to sort of take in uh, visual and auditory information, integrate it with our past knowledge um, to sort of get a sense of the state of play of the world around us. Um, so healthy, healthy participants, when they're watching the suspensive movie, their brains look like this. Uh, one uh, VS patient, their brain looked like that. So we would infer from that they weren't kind of experiencing anything. So they were getting a little bit of auditory information, um, but they weren't consciously experiencing anything. Um, but another patient, this is Jeff Tremblay, his brain looked very similar uh, to what we would expect from a healthy participant. Um, so in a series of other kinds of experiments, um, which I won't get into. Uh, the researchers kind of took this to mean that uh, Jeff was having uh, at least a highly similar conscious experience uh, to a healthy participant. So he was experiencing the movie in the same way that you and I would. So he was experiencing the suspense of the movie. So what can we infer about um, his cognitive capacities based on this? Um, so there's a few different uh, things. One of the most important is that he retains his capacity for executive function. So he can take in kind of sensory information and organize it in this way to sort of understand what's going on in the world around him. Um, there's also evidence that he possesses sort of a theory of mind. So he can, he can understand that other people are thinking and thinking things that might be different from him. This is, this is critical to understanding um, that the characters in the movie don't realize um, that the gun isn't um, isn't a toy, um, so he's able to he's able to understand that other people have thoughts as well, um, and perhaps he's capable of organizing all of these thoughts into kind of a temporal order in order to follow the plot of the movie. Um, so this is a this is kind of a host of fairly uh, high level cognitive capacities which are required to sort of attend to a movie in the same way that a healthy person would. Um, so we can infer that these sorts of cognitive capacities are present in at least some uh, CMD patients. Okay, so there's some evidence that CMD patients may have the kinds of values and interests which ought to inform surrogate decision making. Sorry, so I skipped over a, a little bit there. So the idea is that because they have these sophisticated cognitive capacities, they have the capacity for certain kinds of, of, of values. Um, 
and interests. So similar values and interests. So because they're capable of organizing their thoughts in a certain kind of way, maybe they have sort of an interest in their lives going in a certain kind of way. Because they're able to um, infer thoughts in other people, this greatly expands kind of how they can um, how they can understand how people are interacting with them. And this creates a possibility for different kinds of values and interests as well, um, beyond uh, just self-narrative. So does this make a difference uh, to how surrogate decision makers should actually make decisions on behalf of these patients? Um, so is there a reason to think that a patient with cognitive motor dissociation, if they have these other kinds of, if they could potentially have other kinds of important interests, um, like an interest in spending time with their family or participating in um, important scientific research. Um, is there any reason to think that their interests by and large are any different than they were pre-injury? So if we think, well, look, on Dworkin's view, um, someone like Frida wouldn't have wanted to go on living um, based on her past wishes. And as it turns out, she doesn't want to go on living based on her present wishes. So maybe this doesn't really make a difference. Um, so is there any reason to think that interest, their interest actually would have changed um, pre and post injury. Well, there's some evidence uh, for this. So this is on the left, Tony Nicholson, and on the right, uh, Kevin Weller. So these are both uh, patients uh, in the locked-in state. So locked-in patients, I take to be an illustration of the potential for response shift. So this is the idea that people's important uh, preferences um, and sort of expectations for life can shift significantly over time uh, in light of changes to their circumstances. Um, so research suggests uh, that many healthy people wouldn't want to go on living uh, if they were uh, locked in. So, sorry, uh, patients that are locked in are completely uh, conscious. Uh, they're fully cognitively intact, uh, just like you and I, but they're completely incapable of movement, uh, usually except for kind of movements of the jaw or up and down movements of their eyes. Um, there are some cases of patients that are sort of truly locked in and they can't move at all. Um, but that's a little bit rarer than sort of classic locked-in syndrome uh, like these patients are. So as I said, about 36, 40% um, of patients wouldn't want to go on living with locked-in syndrome, but about 40% of patients are on, or participants in this study uh, are unsure about whether they'd want to go on living with locked-in syndrome. Uh, however, um, perhaps surprisingly, um, one study has shown that 72% uh, of patients uh, with locked-in syndrome that were surveyed self-report as being happy. Um, so they, they think that their lives are going, you know, pretty well. Um, not all of them say that they would um, want to be sort of resuscitated in the event of a heart attack. Um, a small percentage of them uh, kind of would still, um, I think they would consent to euthanasia if it were offered to them, something like 5% of them. Um, so there, these, these statistics should be taken with I think with a pinch of salt. Um, so they could reflect the selection bias. Um, these patients were taken from um, sort of a support group of locked-in syndrome patients. So maybe um, there was some self-selection here, the kind of patients that want to participate in the study about um, happiness and locked-in syndrome tend to be happier. Um, and on the left, uh, Tony Nicholson was involved in a kind of prolonged case about um, sort of whether it was legal for him to uh, be allowed to die. So he was not happy uh, in, in, his, in his condition and he, he very much wanted to end his life. So I'm not suggesting that locked-in syndrome, all locked-in syndrome patients are happy by any means, um, but I am suggesting that 
this is a case where uh, we might think that you know life would be truly awful but once we actually get into that situation maybe it wouldn't be so bad um so again lock-in syndrome is very different from cognitive motor dissociation um, lock-in patients do have some capacity for communication which um, with the exception of this, the very few patients who have used fMRI to communicate, uh, CMV patients by and large can't communicate. Um, so there's definitely a difference uh, between those patient groups. Um, but I just want to suggest that there is the potential that um, a patient's sort of past wishes to not go on living with a, a severe kind of disability like CMV or like Lofton syndrome, those actually might change uh, once they're actually in that situation. Okay. So to get back to the main question, how should surrogates make decisions on behalf of behaviorally non-responsive patients? So I think surrogate decision makers should be cautious about placing too much weight on a patient's past desires uh, and values. They should place a greater weight on their present values, concerns, and desires, reflecting the ways they can still engage with the world. Um, so I've argued that there's some evidence that patients with covert awareness could retain the capacity for critical interests in the present i.e. they could have a sense of what's meaningful and valuable in life for them. And that may be different uh, from their past critical interests. So I think this gives a reason uh, to question the authority of their past critical interests in decision-making on their behalf. Um, I think that even if we want to grant that um, shaping one's life narrative is important, I don't think it should necessarily be of primary importance because these other kinds of values are important as well, and these values that these patients can still have. Um, are important as well. Um, so a patient's past critical interests may have reflected how they want their lives to go in the past, but it may not reflect how they want their lives to go in the present. Now, there's no doubt that in the absence of communication with these patients, um, it's, a, it's a significant challenge to sort of discern what actually would be in their best interest in the present. So what these, um, so I say they might be capable of having certain kinds of values or interests in the present that should govern decision making what these desires and values actually are um, is going to be really hard to determine without um, direct communication. Uh, so we can make kind of general inferences from similar patients, so like locked-in patients. Um, that's, that's one potential option. Uh, there are different kinds of uh, sort of qualitative assessments being developed of well-being in um, patients with disorders of consciousness. Um, we should probably think about how these patients are likely to be experiencing their condition right now, maybe based on the kinds of um, ways that they reacted to situations in the past, as there is some evidence to suggest the way people deal with kind of um, crises or difficulties does sort of uh, transfer over pre and post um, disability. Uh, there's, there's no question that it's going to be very difficult. And I think um, maybe we need to be open to the possibility that for some patients, um, continued life is not necessarily going to be uh, in their best interest. But the, but the takeaway is that we should be focusing on their present interest rather than kind of their past wishes. Um, so obviously there's a need for continued development uh, for tools to assess well-being in non-communicative patients because even as the ability to communicate with them grows, um, the majority of patients probably won't be able to communicate with them directly. So we need to find some way to kind of get at these, um, these, these values that are important to them in the present. Okay, very brief summary. So the standard view of surrogate decision-making places significant emphasis on respecting patient autonomy. So when a patient loses competence, 
their past desires and wishes become authoritative. And the reason this is, is because self-authorship is really important. But self-authorship isn't the only reason we care about making our own decisions, contra Dworkin. So these other considerations, I suggest, ought to inform surrogate decision-making. Um, and CMD patients are one example of a patient group that could continue to have these values and interests in the present. And so when we're thinking about how we should be making decisions on behalf of these patients, we should focus on the present rather than uh, the past. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. We, we were here a little, a little longer, Mackenzie. Oh, yeah, okay, good. <laughs>